I took a Zyrtec. Oh, boy. And that tea you see in front of you is caffeinated. Okay. Well, they should maybe balance each other out. Because Zyrtec makes you tired. Shit's going down. (laughs) It's Saturday night and I'm ready to party. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name's Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 121, where we will be covering chapters six and seven of Gardens of the Moon by Steven Erickson. That's right. And our next book club will cover chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Gardens of the Moon. And 10. Yes, sir. Would you like to share our spoiler policy? Absolutely. So our spoiler policy is this. Liz has read these books. I haven't read these books. I don't know what's going to happen past chapter 7. So therefore, we won't spoil anything past chapter 7. So it's been a hot minute since we've put out an episode, it's and been a bit. Uh, it has been a bit. So we do appreciate everyone's who's stuck around and uh, is hanging in there with us on the Facebook page and on social media. Who is actually still trying to read along with the podcast? God bless. Um, you. God bless you. So for those of you who maybe have forgotten what has already been covered, I have a very quick, mm-hmm. very short uh-huh. recap. Of chapters one through five. All right. Are you ready? I'm I'm down. All right. So I have uh, 60 seconds. So here it is. Gardens of the Moon in 60 seconds. All right. Time me. I'll time you. Are you ready? Three, two. So a chick named Sari gets possessed by an old witch named Riga, then gets double plus possessed by the demigod of the Shadow Warren, intent on punishing the evil Empress Lazine, who is out to get the bridge burners led by Whiskey Jack, along with pretty much anyone who supported her predecessor, Kellenved, including the mage Tattersail, who loses her lover Kalo in an attack by the high mage Tayshren, and gets sucked into babysitting new Captain Paran, played by Zac Efron, who survived an assassination attempt by Cotillion, who was possessing that teenage girl, if you remember, until he's well enough to follow the bridge burners to Rujistan, the last free city where Krupp, the lovable prophet, and Crocus, the thief protected by the gods of luck Opon, await the city's doom. Also, there's a guy reincarnated as a puppet. Holy crap. How'd I do? 46 seconds. Ooh. First time go. <laughs> I was impressed. You're impressed. I'm a little bit more attractive to you now, aren't I? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was very impressive. So in case you missed it. That's what happened in chapters one through five. You know, you don't even need to read it. (laughs) So, how did you like this section? Reactions. So, I liked it overall. Uh, I do have to say, when we were in chapter 120, I do recall you saying something to the effect of, well, there's not really any new characters. And then... (laughs) There were five new characters I forgot in like about the opening page. All the new characters. <laughs> or two pages Except or for those. Uh, well, <laughs> I, well, I mean, you could say that about anything. But really, we've introduced... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Sorry. You're just going to have to roll with the punches on this one. So chapter six starts with a snapter. I thought I would read it. 
There is a cabal breathing deeper than the bellows, drawing up the emerald fires beneath the rain-glistened cobbles. While you hear the groaning from the caverns below, the whisper of sorcery is less than the dying sigh of a thief stumbling, unwilling, into Darugistan's secret web. Secret wizards. Explode a gas. Yes, that sums up Darugistan for you. So what do you think of the city so far? I think it's it's an enormous metaphor for a fart. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> You're like, I forgot. He's an asshole. When you give him a microphone. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Damn it. I love you. Okay. Let's get into chapter six. Let's do it. If you're ready. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm okay. Ready. In chapter six, as the Malazan forces march inexorably toward Darugistan, political factions within the city go into overdrive trying to navigate this perilous situation. A spy named Circle Breaker reports to the mysterious eel, desperate to keep the city from falling back under the rule of a tyrant. Councilman Turban Orr meets with High Alchemist Baruch, who wants the city's mages to support his statement of neutrality. The city's magic users are also courted by Anamander Rake, the Lord of Moon's Spawn and King of the Giant Ravens. The city's powerful underworld is still reeling from the seemingly random attacks on its members. The assassin relic Nam ropes Marilio the Dandy into his scheme to destroy Lady Simtal, a gal who did his friend wrong. Krupp is also there and up in everybody's business. <laughs> I knew a guy in college named Eel. Really? You don't? Did you ever meet him? You remember Eel in college? I, th- I think I would remember that. Like his parents named him that or some really mean friends. I'm not sure he had parents. I don't know where he came from, where he ended up. I just know his name was Eel. Mm-hmm. And he he supplied the college a lot of things that colleges need. <laughs> Well, there's always that guy. There was that guy. <laughs> I mean, if you knew that guy in college, I guarantee his name was something like Eel. I don't know. I didn't talk to a whole lot of people. Mm. I talked to you and like maybe four people. It was, you know, I guess this marriage is not surprising. It's kind of still the same. <laughs> Stati- statistically, <laughs> I... <laughs> you talked to 87% of the people in our lives, I would say. <laughs> We're digressing already. Already, come on. All right, back to chapter six. Back to chapter six. Um, Okay, so we open this chapter with Crone. Crone the Great Raven. And she's pretty badass, right? Yeah, absolutely. She is thousands of years old due to exposure to magic is what makes the Great Ravens great, I guess. Um, And she can also see sorcery and she's drawn to magic. Yeah. So she's just kind of flying over Darugistan um, and she's in the service of her master. She's been asked to call on a certain person and that's it. So now we we kind of know that the great ravens are not just mindless beasts. They are actually sentient and quite powerful magic users of their own. And then we meet a new character, Circle Breaker, who I love this read through so much more. I was always just kind of he was one of the characters on previous read-throughs. I'd be like, blah, 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 this guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, slowing down and really kind of picking up a few nuances in this character. I totally love it. Can we uh, go back to Crone real quick? Yeah. So she's flying over, you know, and she says she sees the aquamarine emanation of sorcery, you know, everywhere she goes. She's mm-hmm. seeing it everywhere, which I guess leads me to ask a couple questions. It seems like she's saying... 
or maybe she isn't, but it seems like she's saying that there's kind of sorcery everywhere, you know, indoors. Mm -hmm. Is there more sorcery going on in Darujistan than in other cities? It sort of almost seems like it would be. Mm -hmm. Simply because, well, one, because we have all that uh, stuff in the Snapter sort of alluding to it. Mm -hmm. But also, I'm thinking if I'm on the continent of Genabacus, Mm -hmm. and I know the Empire's coming, and I know what they do to wizards... I would, you know, be either trying to escape the continent or running to Darujistan if I couldn't. Right. And I suspect most people probably can't escape the continent. Right. So we do know that the Wizards of Pale, some of them made it to Darujistan. Apparently only two. Only two. And we will talk about that later. Yeah. So back to uh, your friend, the guard, Circle Breaker. Yes. So he is guarding... Despot's Barbican and all it stood for. So Darugistan was once ruled by kings, and the last one was a tyrant remembered as the Despot, capital D. Mm-hmm. So you know he was really bad. The guard says he vowed long ago that he would never let such things happen again. So his you know whole mission is to avoid there being kings right. in and Darugistan. So therefore, you would you would assume that this guy is not going to be cool with the empire. That's a good assumption to make. Yeah, yeah. It was a little a little bit confusing at first because the first person he meets with is Turban Orr, uh, who we learn later is kind of a dick, and it led me to believe that that was somebody that he was conspiring with, but it seems more like. He's spying on him, or was Turban or meeting with somebody else and he was spying on him? It was unclear to me exactly what was going on there. Yes, so Turban or was meeting with someone else. Okay, and right. Circle Breaker is the guard who is. Um, this is his guard post. Yeah, that um, part I got. Yes, so no, it's his guard post, and it's pointed out that. Turban Orr shows up and has clandestine meetings in this part, like meets at this gate regularly. Mm-hmm. And that he has never once noticed that it is always the same guard. He sees Circle Breaker as so below his notice it's like that the furniture. he is he doesn't even notice that this happens to be the same person. Wow. Um mm-hmm. so I, I find that really striking because you know, up until now, in Pale, in um, Ido Khan, we've primarily addressed themes surrounding the cruelty, the evil inherent in imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, what happens to individuals when the machine of empire just, like, gobbles them up? And by the way, you guys, you have to take a shot now every time I say machine of empire. Nice. <laughs> from here on out, because... It's gonna come up I think up I say few- it at least twice every episode, so... Get ready. Um, but in Darugistan, we're starting to explore themes such as the corruption of wealth and the cost of seeking individual power. So I just really love how Steven Erickson takes these two different forms of government and contrasts them. So you've got the supposedly the free city of Darugistan, and mm-hmm. it's all about freedom. And it right? appears to have a representative government. Well, in some way. In some way. There's a, okay, ruled by a council, which if you're doing sort of feudal-ish fantasy societies that's usually the most egalitarian ones out there 
But for a city who kind of prides itself on throwing off despots, um, we still see the the inherent inequality um, brought about by wealth and by individuals seeking power. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really neat contrast. And I think it's a really smart way to explore the two different systems of government. And I just I really love the prose and the symbolism in this section when they're standing. And I just something that I never picked up on before. I just would kind of breeze past it. But the description of the gate and how Circle Breaker is standing under under it um, and how it, it symbolizes it's what it is, is the last standing sort of lintel of the, the despot's palace. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, how at the end he says that Despot's Barbican seemed to breathe its promise of resurrection with mocking certainty. Mm-hmm. And uh, just slowing down and reading those, catching those little nuggets is making me just really geek out about this book even more. So Circle Breaker uh, is reporting to a boss named the Eel, but he is also sharing tidbits with high alchemist Baruch. One thing I was a little unclear about, not that it's super important, but whether Circle Breaker was the one directly delivering the messages to Baruch or whether there was an intermediary. So it said that he was leaving the messages in one of the old murder holes on an old wall and that his Baruch's manservant knew where to look for them. Okay. So it's kind of a, a dead drop set up somehow. Gotcha. Okay. Again, it's he's just sharing tidbits of information that uh, that help Baruch, but not necessarily reporting to him. Got it. So he shares with Baruch that Turban Orr is meeting with Councilman Fetter. There's some obviously the council is trying to decide how they're going to approach. Are they going to try and defend the city, or are they going to turn it over to the Malazans? Mm-hmm. Baruch is the unacknowledged or, or not publicly acknowledged mm-hmm. leader of the city's magic users. Kind of a known but unknown type deal. He's kind of the power behind the city's magic users. So he gets visited by Crone, mm-hmm. who yep. busts into his study like the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> yeah. Just walks through a window. And she says, Excuse me. I am Crone, eldest of the moon's great ravens, whose eyes have looked upon a hundred thousand years of human folly. <laughs> That's a tagline. It, I need a tagline like that. <laughs> I am Elizabeth, the wise matron of this house, who has looked upon childhood folly for 15 years. <laughs> I am the Duchess, who has wiped the butts of <laughs> countless humans. <laughs> we'll move on. So Baruch agrees to meet with Crone's master, but first... Turban Orr shows up. Absolutely. Before we get to Turban Orr, one thing I noted is Crone sort of implores Baruch, now, hey, a calming crystal of wine, don't you think? Mm. And then Baruch says, who has sent you, Crone? Baruch asked, walking over to the decanter on his desk. Normally, he did not drink after sunset, for night was when he worked. But he had to acknowledge Crone's perceptiveness. A calming balm was exactly what he needed. Was she in some way influencing him in a magical way? Oh, you know she was. Right? I mean, and then we'll talk a little, later, a little bit later about Anamander Rake. Oh, we're going to talk about Anamander Rake. But first, Roald steps in with Turban Orr. Listen, I don't trust Roald. Why not? You can't spell Donald Trump without Roald. <laughs> I was just thinking. Letters R O A L D. 
if you're no if your name is Roald, you're a manservant. Yeah. Well, That's it. <laughs> you know if, I mean, if you want your child to be a manservant. An insurance actuarial? You, I guess. No, manservant. That's the only <laughs> job for someone named Roald. I mean, so far, 100% of the Roalds I know are manservants. So. <laughs> so I noted that Crone says about Turban Ore, a demon perches on his shoulder named Ambition. Capital A. Capital A, Ambition. So definitely the perils of ambition and seeking personal power are really explored in Darugistan versus in the the empire where everybody seems to be sort of this faceless sort of government entity. Not that people don't kind of scheme for their own good, but it's not the same. It's not the same dynamic. So Baruch calls Orr out for his bullshit yeah. on his so-called neutrality statement and claims that Orr is just trying to protect protect his own position, which is absolutely true. Crone is sitting there in the guise and the and a glamour of a dog, mm-hmm. able to communicate with Baruch, but Turban Orr can't right. tell. Right. Can't can't see through the illusion. And Baruch says, even if I had such influence as you suggest, Crone snorted, meaning he clearly does. Right. <laughs> he, he clearly does have the influence mm-hmm. that Turban Orr suggests. Yeah. And then, you know, I, here's where I started asking myself, why does Turban Orr want neutrality so bad? Particularly when, as we discover later, because we don't really know much about Orr at this point, but we discover later, he's a member of the noble class. Right. Which, historically, as I'm sure they all know, the Empire comes in and does away with the nobility and has them executed. And what we find out in Chapter 7 is that what Turban Orr is hoping is that if he is the one that is seen leading the push for neutrality, if he is the one that hands the keys of the city over, that he'll be made the high fist of the city. And that's really what he wants. Not entirely sure how much I buy it. That that would happen or that that's what he wants? Both. Well... We'll get talk more about that when we get to chapter seven. Yep. And his conversation with Lady Simtal. But first, we have to talk about Anamander Rake's fucking entry because it oh. is so metal. It's it's quite metal. I'm just gonna read it. Suddenly, the walls around him groaned, and Baruch gasped as an enormous weight seemed to press down on him. The blood pounded in his head, lancing him with pain. He gripped the edge of the map table to steady himself. The incandescent globes of light suspended from the ceiling dimmed, then flickered out. In the darkness, the alchemist heard cracks sweeping down the walls as if a giant's hand descended on the building. I mean, that's what happens when you walk in a room. (laughs) Ladies... If your man causes cracks to form in the wall when he walks into a room, right. he might not be your man. He might not. He might be Anamanda Rake. I don't trust How him. How badass is that? That's pretty badass. I don't trust him. I don't trust Anamanda Rake. You can't spell Joe Biden without Anamanda Rake. <laughs> now, but seriously. So I, do you really not like the character? No, or? I love the character, Anamanda yeah. Rake. He, he's, he's super cool. I don't know why I thought this. It makes no sense, but I really thought when Moonspawn limped away from Pale, I was like, that's it. We're not going to see Anamander Rake for like three more books. Mm -hmm. I have no idea 
why I thought that. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. You know, two chapters later, he's he's sitting down on Baruch's couch going, can we talk about you know, <laughs> our future together? So, but the other thing I noticed is that he, too, before they do anything, you know, he says, I like it dark and have you any wine? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, is there some sort of weird, like, elder blood guest right thing going on here? We had Crone being like, before we can talk, wouldn't you like a nice glass of wine? And then we have Anamanda Ray coming in the room and being like, I think we should have some wine. He's like, drink up, bitches. Yeah. <laughs> I- or or are, is he just aware that humans are like, he's like, you're going to need to sit down and have a shot for this. I like- saw it as just trying to loosen Baruch up. Things didn't go so well with the Wizards of Pale. Because they were drunk all the time. You can't negotiate from that position. <laughs> My name, as best as it can be pronounced by humans, is Anamanda Rake. As- I'm going to start saying that. I'm sorry. <laughs> My name, as best can be pronounced by humans, <laughs> is Liz. You couldn't actually pronounce my name, but call me Liz. Let's call me Liz. As best as it can be pronounced by your clumsy human tongue. Listen, Anamanda Rake can tie a knot in a cherry stem with his tongue. All right? Absolutely. Not only can he tie a knot in the cherry stem, he can tie a knot in the RNA strand as well. Absolutely. His tongue is highly skilled. (laughs) Oh, we need to go back to Crone for a minute because oh, okay. before she leaves, she says to Baruch, I see 12 ships riding in a deep harbor. 11 stand tall in flames. And Baruch replies, and the 12th. And she says, on the wind, a hailstorm of sparks fills the night sky, still spinning. And the word spinning is significant. And also the fact that Crone senses a coin spinning mm-hmm. so we already know that opan has has got their hands in things uh, in darugistan but the fact that everybody's kind of putting these pieces together i think is significant yeah yeah you can see that people are starting to kind of get a sense of what's going on baruch at this point hasn't fully figured it out which we only know because of how chapter seven ends correct so in this conversation, we learn more about Animator Rake and the T-Standi. Uh, so mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's got a giant magic sword. That's pretty badass. Two-handed sword was strapped to Rake's broad back. It's silver dragon skull pommel, an archaic cross hilt jutting from a wooden scabbard fully six and a half feet long from the weapon bled power, staining the air like black ink in a pool of water. Yeah, but does it talk? <laughs> It reminds me of Nightblood. It does. (laughs) It does. We learn that Rake is not a fan of the Empress. And also that there are no fighters on Moonspawn, which is why he ended up having to retreat. Mm -hmm, So Baruch kind of calls him out. This is his apology tour. He's like, "Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we find out that, um, you know, he fled to save his city because really it was only him there. He was the only one using magic that day. Basically, his city is full of like children and old people. And everybody else was out uh, in in the field at, on ba- you know in battles away from Pale, right? So yeah, that's a strategic blunder. In Pale, we find out that and and what he says is my presence alone was keeping the Empire at bay. You know, for two years they stayed away just because of the city floating there, and really what caused Pale to fall was the wizards fleeing. There was rumors that the Claw were in the city going to hunt them down, and they scrammed. I, I like this phrase. 
Pale had its wizards, Rake frowned. Indeed. Yet, Baruch continued, when the battle was begun in earnest, your first thought was not for the alliance you made with the city, but for the well-being of your moon. Who told you this? Rook, Rake demanded. Uh, you did. <laughs> just, just now. <laughs> you just told me. You just said that. You just said that. <laughs> Animander Rake wants then to create a truce between mm-hmm. the mages of Darugistan, another mm-hmm. pact just like he made with the Wizards of Pale. He didn't learn his negotiating tactics from the best of them. Right. It's like, I want an alliance. Well, the people you just allied with are all dead. Yeah. I killed I them. I killed them. <laughs> so how about that alliance? <laughs> it's like, I didn't think of it that way, but you're so right. Let me, let me think about it. No. <laughs> Do I have a choice? <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. I love he asks, uh, how did you kill them? And he's like, um, with my sword. <laughs> he's like, oh, oh, you did it personally. Right. <laughs> like, not like you sent people to kill them. Not well, like you sent a wave of necrosis. You hunted them down individually. I, I also think that the implication is that the sword delivers a worse death than just your average stabbing kind of death. Because at the end, when he you says... super dead. When he says, like, I want these those last two wizards that, that escaped me from Pale that are in the city, and either alive or I want their heads. And Baruch says... If I give them to you alive, are you going to use that sword at them? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And Baruch says, I'll bring you their heads. Like, they don't deserve whatever whatever that sword is going to do. And the last thing we hear from Andamander Rake in this section is him laughing and admonishing lightly Baruch and saying, ah, you have too much mercy in your heart. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that sounds... Real foreboding coming from this son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would want to sign that deal. But again, what choice do you have? Yeah, if you say no, now you've pissed off the Empire and the T-Stand-T. Uh, uh. So our next section sets up kind of one of the core conflicts in Darugistan, which is uh, Ralik Nam and his vendetta against Lady Simtal. Mm-hmm. So Ralik is a an assassin, and he has a, a personal grudge against uh, this Lady Simtal. Uh, but it's but, yeah. But the grudge is not on his behalf. Correct. It's on behalf of one of his friends, and we we get some ideas about who it may be later, but it's right. not explained at this point. Right. It was not fully put out there. It's yeah. Strongly hinted at. Yeah. So what happens here is we meet Ralik, and he is. Poised with a crossbow aimed at Lady Simtel's heart, and he's thinking about how happy he's gonna be when she's gone, and how you know her days of debauchery and and fun are over. When all of a sudden he's overwhelmed by a spinning sound and whispered voices, and just like that, his plans change on a dime, as it were. Also, you know, the end of the section in Bar- with Baruch right before we jump into this is when Turbinor is walking out and he curses, he makes this curse, you know, 
or, or not not a curse. I'm sorry. He makes this proclamation. We've we'll get the vote by just one vote. We have it, you know, mm-hmm. and you'll you'll yeah. be sorry. I didn't really need you. Uh, yeah, this is uh, you know sour grapes. And then as he's walking out, the crone says, "On this night of all nights, to tempt myriad fates with such words." Mm-hmm. And then faintly, as if from a great distance, she thought she could hear the spinning of a coin. And that's the moment mm-hmm. that Rolik Nam, the assassin, mm-hmm. hears the spinning coin in his head. And suddenly this person who, as we kind of see later, is a very sort of one-step, two-step thinker. Right. Suddenly is gifted this brilliant, elaborate, mm-hmm. you know, idea with all these intricate social interactions involved yeah. in it. And clearly it's not from him. Right. And so his plan shifts from just killing Lady Simtal to killing the man that she is with, Councilman Lim, who was going to be Orr's one vote that put him over the edge. Mm -hmm. It also leaves Lady Simtal with this husband of this woman and this council person. Married council person dead in her bedroom. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So... And, and it might have been better if he just killed her. And Ralik thinks, in the end, she'll fall, and in the fall, an old friend will rise. So Ralik then comes back and just happens to meet up with uh, a clan leader um, named Ocelot, who is talking about, you know, there's this clan war going on, yada, yada, and and basically he wants him to walk around the next day and look murdery. Yeah. Just look really weird and suspicious. And we're going to set the train. We're going to see if anyone tries to kill you. I mean, an assassin named Ocelot. <laughs> if your name is Ocelot, there are only two occupations you could possibly have. <laughs> One is an assassin, and the other is a character in Metal Gear Solid. Like, that's <laughs> yes. it's the only possible job you could have. Just like if your name is Vorkan, you're going to be a crime boss. Yeah, I mean... Possibly an alien. I could, I could buy that. Alien or crime boss. I could buy that. So as the chapter comes to a close, uh, we, we go back to the inn, sort of the, the home base of mm-hmm. our little group of characters that we've met so far. And now I'm watching everything around Rolik Nam for like, okay, who is he supposed to be looking murdering right. for? I, I can't see it. Can't, can't figure it out. Yeah, you were right. So who knows? That has not been explained yet at this point. But what we get at this scene in the inn is sort of a reinforcing of the core group of characters Mm -hmm. and and the fact that they are a group and that they are sort of a chosen family type group. So we have Krupp, who is the prophet slash magic user slash sort of ne'er do well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he acts as a fence. He acts as like a go between uh, Crocus, the thief. Marilio, the playboy, the and the fop, sure, and Ralic, the assassin. So you got your own little like rogues D D party. Absolutely. Yeah. All right there. All rogues, the mm-hmm. swashbuckler. The swashbuckler. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Hamilton and like the story of tonight. Yes, it's Ex- very much that kind yeah, of feel. Yeah. Except more sticky and desperate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So in chapter seven. The plot thickens in Darugistan as Ralik's plan for vengeance against Lady Simtal moves forward. Marilio scores a few invites to the hottest party of the season, and Krupp hangs out with an elder god in his dreams. 
Circle Breaker considers asking to be extracted from his increasingly dangerous mission, but decides the risk is worth it if he can keep Darugistan free. Turban Orr's plan involves selling out the rest of the city so that he can become a Malazan High Fist, while High Alchemist Baruch's plans hinge on protecting Crocus, who bears the coin of Opan. The Lord and Lady of Luck may be the city's best hope. So once again, Krupp has a dream. He needs to stop, like, eating meatballs before bed or something. (laughs) Lay off the spicy food, pal. He finds this dude hovering in a fire with his hands like in the fire. He says, I am known as Kral. And he's like, oh, Kral, I watched that movie. It was terrible. No wonder no one worships you anymore. No, Kral. I know the spandex was too much. <laughs> I just got to say, if you want your kid to be an elder god, name him Kral. Right? I mean... Again, with a name like Crawl, what else? What is he else could be? you possibly be? <laughs> Hi, this is our youngest child, Crawl Dukes. <laughs> Br- bring me my Legos and worship me. <laughs> so, Crawl is an elder god. So, we're getting more and more kind of layers to this world peeled away you know mm-hmm. we have the current system of sort of powerful beings the ascendance is kind of explained to us but then we are, are learning that there before the ascendance there were these other beings greater beings mm-hmm. that have kind of passed out but they they're not entirely gone but Krull tells us that without followers without worshipers he is pretty much kind of a ghost or a wraith he can't feel anything he can't really act um, it was the offering of blood and bones uh, in his little special place in the belfry mm-hmm. there uh, that gave him his power. And now mm-hmm. that the assassin uh, from, you know, chapter four, mm-hmm. was it four? Whatever chapter it was, uh, was assassinated. The blood was spilled there and mm-hmm. he's woken up. He says, I am here to await one who will be awakened. One I have known before, long ago. Later... He references child gods. So what I'm taking all this to mean is that he was summoned by High House Shadow or invoked somehow. Um, they're involved. But this is happening because High House Shadow itself is this ancient house with these old forgotten powers from prior to the emperor. That's where I'm going with all this. He tells Krupp to await the Talan Imas who will lead the woman. Mm-hmm. They are the Awakeners. And he also tells Krupp that every god falls at a mortal's hands. Such is the only end to immortality. Which was hinted at with Ganos and mm-hmm. his, you know, visiting... Opan and Hood. The Death's Gate, yeah. Right. But again, we have now we have another mysterious group, the Talanamas, who will lead the woman. Oh, the Talanamas are so I can't wait to. Yeah, you read more about them. Uh, yeah, they're they're the Awakeners. They're cool, uh, and they're going to lead the woman. What woman? I mean, you know, that seems like there are two principal women, actually three, I guess: Tattersail, Sorry, and Lacine. Mm-hmm. It seems like he would and be Lorn. Yeah. Lauren Lacine, who are kind of the same. Same camp, at least. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem like 
he would want to be partnered with the Empress, but who knows? You'll have to find out. You'll have to find out. Another very mysterious dream of Krupp. So we move on to Circle Breaker again, who, by the way, is played by Carl Urban in my head. What? You think so? Okay. Yes. I was going with like John Schneider, like Hmm. old, like Bo from from the Dukes of Hazzard. He's sitting there, camera slightly below him, looking off in the distance, wind whipping through his hair. He's looking off in the distance. Tears up the scroll. And then he turns around and calls everybody cunts. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's just the way I see it. (laughs) We have very different visions of this. (laughs) Circle Breaker is thinking about his past. And again, I I just I really love the the depth that's added to this character in a very short section. And we find out that he was he was once um, when he was a youth, he was kind of enthralled by this group called the Freeman Privateers. And when he left home, he joined them, but that somehow the Freeman Privateers ended tragically outside of a city named Broken Jaw. Mm. And I'm sorry if there's a city named Broken Jaw. I don't know if you want to hang out there. <laughs> I just, <laughs> you might get what's coming to you. If you're a dentist, it's the perfect place oh, to there, go. Yes. For everybody else, stay away. <laughs> but what he learned through that experience was never reach too far. Never reach too far. Used to be a big shot privateer, eh? (laughs) Too good for guard duty, eh? Up jump and want to be a spy. But what happens here in this scene is, so he's sitting there and he's realizing that things are getting pretty hot. He's not sure if he wants to mess with Turban or um, Turban or um, in the scene with Baruch, we learn that it would have been pretty easy for someone to find out who he was. So as hard as he works to remain anonymous and to be kind of behind the scenes and to, to not reach too far, he kind of gets to realize that he's swimming with the big fish and that he is in a lot more danger than he wants to be. So he's sitting there ready to kind of ask for extraction, but thinking about the lessons of his past, it's just a beautiful kind of poignant moment where he decides not to. And he decides that... Uh, Preserving the freedom of the city is worth the risk. And he he tears it up and walks away. Um, it was it was not super clear to me what was going on. Because he, he doesn't really say what's on the scroll. Other than he says, it's a plea for help. Right. So I didn't know if that's him saying, get me out of here. It's, you know, yeah. I, I want to be extracted from this situation. Free me from this obligation. I can't do this anymore. Or if it's supposed to be some sort of report. It's unclear, and he says it would be an easy thing to do to surrender now, but he doesn't make it clear which action is the act of giving up. Is giving up giving the agent the scroll and saying, please help me get out of this, or is giving up tearing up the scroll and walking away from his duty? Because obviously the person who's there to get the scroll is, is looking for something that's not going to be there. So it was very unclear to me what action he was actually taking. So, I mean, maybe you and I just read things differently. It seemed to me like what he's doing in in what his missive to the eel is, is asking for help, um, is, is asking not to have to risk himself in this situation. Um, 
uh, he says a crossroads marked where he now stood. He recognized that much. In answer to his ill-measured fear, he'd written the plea for help on his scroll. It would be an easy thing to do to surrender now. It, I, we don't yeah. need to get too bogged down in it. Yeah, yeah. That's the way that I read it. I mean, I think you're most likely right. It was just not super clear to me at that point. Well, and you, and obviously, if this character comes back around, you would, you would know that. Whereas I don't have that information. Listeners at home, weigh in. How did you read that section? Is it John Schneider or is it Billy Bragg or was Carl Urban? Carl Urban. Billy Butcher is the character that Billy we're both Butcher. picturing from The yeah. Boys. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that's just how I pictured him. Yeah. On to Lady Simtall. Simtall. She is pissed. She's with Turban Orr. And, and um, she is doing what she does. With <laughs> Turban Orr. Orr and Simtall, what a toxic pair. Right? Jeez. Their dialogue is weird, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the only place in these books where I've read the dialogue and I've been like, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's like they're having separate conversations. They're not listening to each other. And part of it is that we're seeing this through Lady Simtal's eyes and she is, um, obviously she's very manipulative. She's very crafty. She's very disdainful of Turban Orr, but she keeps that very well hidden. He, on the other hand, openly just berates her. Mm -hmm. He calls her an idiot and then he's like, so I'll see you later. Yeah. I mean, they both call each other idiots. She calls him an idiot. Yeah, I mean, so. but she is the one who calls Orr out on, I know what you're doing, and your goal is to mm-hmm. become a high fist and to just turn the city over to the empire. Yeah. She also brings up her ex-husband and asks, has Orr checked on him? Um, what's he doing? And he says, um, he hasn't sobered up since you chucked him out in his arse. Yeah, which would lead us to think... That it's the guy Call mm-hmm. from the inn who was face down in a puddle of beer. Uh, There's the one, right? The one who Crocus said he thought was once something more, right? I suspect that there are in Darujistan on the eve of an invasion, probably lots of drunks, but this just happens to be the only one we know that has a connection to Rollick. Well, and who also has is is a friend of Rollick. You know, yeah, yeah, in his little core group. So it seems likely, that and and this guy is not just drunk recently. This is this is a guy who is always drunk as long as they've known him. So, so yeah, that's a pretty good guess. So a couple things that I noted about this conversation that I wanted to bring up as well. So, in the very beginning, when we're introduced to her, she's talking about being jealous of Lim's widow, who has the Fat Marilio. Right. On, on her arm. Right. And she's like, I think he should be my boy toy. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me like it's definitely part of Rollick's plan and definitely seems way too subtle for Rollick. You know, the idea of having Murillo go and court the widow so that Simtal will get jealous. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that seems like quite subtle and not something that I mean it's just more evidence mm-hmm. that this is Opon right. at work in all these tiny little things yeah it's Opon at work uh, Opon at work the other thing I noted that that she said was when they were talking about the failed vote she says I don't believe in coincidence Turban tell me was it coincidence that his death broke your majority the night before the vote 
Oh, and snap. I'm like, I'm like, Lady Simtal knows what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. She might she might be one of the smartest people mm-hmm. people playing the game right now. So I like the the way the contrast here. We see Turban Orr in bed with Lady Simtal, and then in the next scene we see Lady Orr making her play for Marilio. I mean, is everybody fucking somebody else in this town? Like, yeah, yes. Yes, they are. Marilio demonstrates some skills in subtlety where it's completely lacking in Rolignam. Yeah. So I like this line, I think, tells you pretty much everything you need to know about Marilio's character. He he says, and this is most assuredly a play for favors, Marilio's best game, and he always played it through. So Marilio is the social sort of butterfly of the group, the one who mo- can move among the higher classes. And, you know, we've got this kind of band of rogues, but none of them are like poor um, or or like super low class kind of criminals. They're no. all, mm-hmm. um, you know, Crocus is a thief by choice because he's kind of bored, but his uncle is... Um, it's a mage, yeah. Is, is a mage. So he's not necessarily of like low social standing. But mm-hmm. Marilio is someone who can go get kind of finagle invites to these upper crust parties. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what he's doing here for, for Rollick. We also find out that Marilio has some sense of morality. He's not happy about seducing a married woman. Nonetheless, he does it for the sake of Rollick's plan. So I think it demonstrates one of two things, either genuine friendship and compassion and him really wanting to help out Rollick, even if it's something that's distasteful to him, or Rollick has told him the end game and he's very invested in the mm-hmm. end game. Right. And if it is, as we suspect, on behalf of their mutual friend mm-hmm. um, who, you know, won't act against his ex because of pride, then um, Marilio could also be equally invested. However, we also find out a little bit later that they don't want Krupp to find out what they're doing. Yeah. This is just a Marilio and Rollick side quest going on. They're, maybe they're not sure other people will approve. This whole caper of Rollicks is shaping up very much like a scheme and like some Shakespearean romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, it has it has sort of a, a dark, twisted, like Midsummer's Night Dream yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of feel to it. Um, I just sort of wonder, like, what are Rollick and Marilio going to be like at the party? Mm-hmm. Are going to be like, baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> like, you know. Lady Orr bouncing between them. <laughs> Come on, baby. You know, like, like how, like, how is this going to play out? Mm-hmm. We'll find out. Well, we'll have to see. So, meanwhile, Crocus is having a crisis of conscience, <laughs> and he can't stop thinking about the hot chick that he was peeping on while he stole her jewelry. His real crime was an invasion of her privacy, but also stealing her stuff. <laughs> yeah. But also invading her privacy. I mean, he took a gander. Oh, yeah. Uh, what I like here is the direct comparison between Crocus and Ralik Nam's worldviews. Because in the previous section, we have Ralik Nam kind of ruminating on the fact that he doesn't resent the nobility. He kind of recognizes the inequality in, mm-hmm. um, you know, amongst the classes. But for him, he doesn't resent not being part of 
the top tier. He just sees that as a an opportunity to exploit them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just another group to be exploited as well. Whereas Crocus, who is much younger and maybe hasn't been through as much, very much resents the nobility. Yeah. And Crocus takes a moment to kind of look at, you know, he's in a he's up amongst the upper estates and he notices the differences between the high gallows and the low gallows. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very uh, striking thing, a uh, little t- detail in this yeah. section mm-hmm. about the high gallows, for, obviously for the nobility, they almost, the ropes are all new. It's been a long time since anyone mm-hmm. went there, but the, the low gallows, it's like, all they're always full. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of is, is sitting there and sort of bitterly ruminating on that. And the fact that he, for the first time, has seen one of his victims as a human that he hurt is just blowing his mind you know because up until now he's viewed the nobility as people not like him people who deserve what's coming to them they they Mm -hmm. deserve to have their things taken Mm -hmm. you know so he's sitting there just kind of having his mind completely turned around and while he's wondering this while he's doing all this so and up in his head you know think thinking about this you know all the stuff that we just said he's wandering towards turban ores house yes and casing it yes so like in the middle of talking about how it's all you know real the real crime here it's like you know it's i mean it's it's basically like privacy rape and like yeah but he's also like three guards yeah wall is 15 yes. feet high exactly. four feet thick at the base that's not, can't get in through the front you know like <laughs> He's still going through through that whole thing, you know, at the whole time. And, you know, then we have Rolik Nam who who grabs him and says, no, you got to- Not this house. You got to stay away from Turban Ore. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the coins at play here, as Mm -hmm. it is in in almost everything Mm -hmm. in these stories, but I don't think it's in Crocus wandering randomly- into the turban ores or deciding to go after turban ore. Mm-hmm. I think it happened beforehand when Rolik Nam sort of was in his little daydream headspace and wandered across mm-hmm. Crocus on his way. Yes. So if, if the coin hadn't been there and Rolik hadn't have st- happened to have stumbled mm-hmm. upon Crocus, Crocus would have went forward with the plan, mm-hmm. would have burgled, the Oars house, and that would have somehow, through some weird butterfly effect, foiled all of Rolik Nam's plans. Yes, I think that that is very astute. I absolutely think you're right there. So Crocus approaches Krupp and asks for, so Krupp is Crocus's fence, mm-hmm. and he asks for the things, the, the Darl Maiden's things back. Um, so he can, uh, we're assuming he's going to return them, or whatever. What we don't know what he's going to do with them. I love this scene with Krupp. Uh huh. Just the every little subtle interaction with him, mm-hmm. where he's like, "You want to fire me as a fence?" You right. know, and then <laughs> you know, like, but all of the way in which he reacts to mm-hmm. Crocus. Crocus gives him the coin, and he's like. He's like, oh, this coin's not worth anything. Mm-hmm. Could you mind going to the other side of the bar and just checking <laughs> to see if there's a redhead with a green dress and a yellow flower <laughs> in her hair? Make a take a good long look. <laughs> yes. You know. 
And then when Crocus comes back, he's he's like, oh, I don't know. I got some wax on my Somehow hands. I got it's wax weird. on my hands. I don't know where that came from. Yeah. Well, and I love too when Crocus comes into the bar, Krupp is sitting there and he has got this other guy like completely hostage and he's telling him this long, elaborate, boring story. And Crocus is like, oh, I, I don't want to interrupt. And the guy's like, oh, no, please. Oh, no, no. It's fine. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> Krupp reminds me of Jack Falstaff. Mm-hmm. Whoa, wait, who's that? Jack Falstaff is a recurring character in a bunch of Shakespeare plays. Like all the Henry plays. Mm, okay. And he's like this sort of corrupt, like rapscallion uh-huh. character, chubby. Uh-huh. And he's always getting into trouble, but he's also friends with Prince Henry. Mm. But where Jack Falstaff had no real competence. Right. Other than just being really witty. Right. Krupp actually has some competence that he's hiding. I love that comparison. And I love that Krupp is such a, a layered character who is... Um, you know, constantly underestimated and who works very hard to remain that way. Mm-hmm. And he immediately, when he gets the coin, recognizes that it's tied to Opal. Yes, yes, absolutely. Can we start calling Marilio, Rollick, and Crocus the Scooby Gang? Oh, they are absolutely the Scooby Gang. Okay, all right. Dubbed, yeah. let it be known. <laughs> Here to four. <laughs> they shall be the Scooby Gang. Marilio and Rollick have a meeting in secret at the Tower of Hinter. Hinter is a dead sorcerer whose wraith still haunts the tower, and he's trapped all these other souls in there with him. I loved this part. Again, I probably breezed right past it on my one of my first read-throughs, but just like the depth of world-building here. Like, there's this whole other, like, like I could read the story of Hinter, and, and I would be interested in that. Yeah, but yeah, it's just yeah. kind of, like, hinted at not only the story of Hinter, but also the, you know, okay, there are ghosts. There are, you mm, know, yeah, ghosts yeah. of warlocks can do things. And, you know, it's just another layer of the supernatural that's kind of laid out. Well, and how they get there, you know, he goes up and he talks to the gold merchant and he, you know, he says, I'd like to buy an eagle on Wednesday. Yeah, oh, right. yeah. the, the bread is moly on the dark side. Yeah. Come come in, <laughs> sir. You know, the secret code and, and he, you know, takes him in there. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it as well. You know, I read this section like three times including last night because I wanted to kind of you know refresh my memory for the podcast. But last night for the first time, I had to ask myself, why are they here? Like what happens is they have a conversation about, did you get the invites? Yeah, I got the invites. He shows them the invites. They have a conversation about Crocus. That's it. They could do that anywhere. Except that they're begin, they are becoming increasingly concerned about Krupp finding out what they're doing. So they talk quite a bit about, do you think Krupp knows what's going on? And he's like, no, I, I think we're st- we still have him in the dark. So I think as the plan progresses, they are because that was one of my first thoughts too. And I remember thinking, why don't they just why you know? I mean, these are it's not like them being together and being seen together. Yeah, like why aren't they just sitting in the bar and handing them over? But I think that Ralik is just becoming increasingly needing to be more and more secretive about what it is and what they're doing. I mean, to go to that length Mm -hmm. just to avoid Krupp overhearing you, if that is what it's for should give you a real indication of how much respect they have for Krupp's ab- Krupp and his abilities. Well, I mean, he's <laughs> we saw what he just pulled with the wax on the coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so d- I think it does indicate that Ralik at least doesn't underestimate Krupp as much as 
many others do. Mm -hmm. I wrote this quote down that I really liked. As they reached the path, Marilio turned for a look at the tower's doorway, wondering if he could see the gibbering wraiths. But all he saw beneath the sagging arch was a wall of darkness. In some ways, he found that more disturbing than any horde of lost souls he might imagine. And I just love this reminder that I just love this reminder that our imaginations can torment us far more than real life monsters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this part of the book, I, I just think that's what everyone in the city is is battling right now. It's like their own imaginings of what the Malazan Empire is going to do. Yeah. So that's just a very neat little bit of prose. The other quote that I wrote down is them talking about Crocus and just how quickly they completely sniff out what's going right. on with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are They're like, oh, Crocus has a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Our young thief is perchance smitten and now keeps her baubles for himself. Of all the hopeless dreams a boy could have, he's reached for the worst. <laughs> and then they hint that they're, they might talk to his uncle. Curious to see how that would go. So, yeah, you get the impression that maybe the Darl Maiden wouldn't be completely out of Crocus's reach maybe his uncle is of higher social standing than we thought Mm. but don't really know for sure at this point yeah that was not the thought that i had but that's a good thought so the last bit of this chapter is uh baruch in his study and there's a lovely you know kind of metaphor that happens here where he knocks the red ink onto the map you didn't get it with the boat prophecy right (laughs) We'd like to make it a little clearer for you. So I think the fact that he was like startled by the construction workers outside mm-hmm. and he knocks this red ink over onto the map of Darudistan, I think that was a that's a really important bit of symbolism as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. We wanna we wanna make sure the symbolism is heavy. So Krupp visits Baruch and we find out that not only is Krupp one of kind of report to Baruch, which isn't a surprise because Krupp is a magic user and he, you know, um, Baruch is sort of the, the head of the magic users, but the others are also kind of agents of yeah. him as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, everybody in the Scooby gang, except for Crocus. Right. Crocus at Crocus is sort of like, he's the scrappy yeah, of yeah. the gang. <laughs> he's sort of just their little kid mascot. Yeah, yeah. What do you um, want to do, Spike? What do you want to do? You want yeah. to do? <laughs> we also realize that Baruch is one who vastly underestimates Krupp. Mm, yeah, for sure. And he charges him to protect the coin bearer. This was the quote that I liked in in the beginning. Such a hot day, Krupp said. He sat eyeing the carafe of wine on the mantelpiece. (laughs) Ignoring this, Baruch strode to a window. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm comparing this to Crone and Mm -hmm. Anamander Rake, where it was Mm -hmm. like, before we get down to business. Yep. Wine. Even Crone, who doesn't drink with wine, is like, you should have some. Yeah. (laughs) You should have some wine. Yeah. But Krupp walks in and he's like, sure is hot out there. (laughs) Kind of an alcoholic. (laughs) Getting a little bit of the shakes. (laughs) You know, and Baruch is like, fuck you. Tell me what you Mm -hmm. have to say. Like, that's just a demonstration of how little he thinks of mm-hmm. him, which is exactly what Krupp wants, right. I would surmise. Right. So a couple of other things that uh, that, I, that I noted. One is, so after Baruch, you know, they talk about the assassin stuff. 
And then he tells him about the coin, mm-hmm. right? And Baruch is appropriately awed by the discovery. Mm-hmm. Gives him the wax. He gives him the wax. That's a tough word to say. Gives him the wax disc. That's a hard one to say without saying whack dicks. <laughs> gives him the whack dicks. It it almost came out. The wax, wax dis- the whack dicks right. rose into the air slowly. <laughs> Take your wacky dick away from me. It hovered before him at eye level. No, not at eye level. You could put out an eye with that thing. <laughs> oh, it's such a mental image right now. Right? The dicks turned, revealing him to the Lord. The dicks turned again. Baruch's eyes widened as it began to spin. A whirring sound filled the back of his head. God. He felt his warren resisting a pressure that grew with the sound. And then the source collapsed. This is what I mm. wanted to point out, not right. the difficulty of saying wax whack dicks. <laughs> wax discs. I can't stop saying it now. So well, it spins around. He gets splattered by. I didn't. Yeah, right at the end, it's all over his face. (laughs) I never asked for any of this. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, the Warren. So he attempts to call on his Warren, right? But it resists him Mm -hmm. and collapses. So it's not even. The presence of Opon, mm-hmm. it's the it's the wax semblance of right. a coin right. of an object that right. they've enchanted. So it's like three degrees removed, yeah. And it's still the Warrens resist that. But the other thing that I noted is that not only was Baruch, you know, this powerful sorcerer, not strong enough, mm-hmm. but also that Krupp knew exactly what was happening. Yes, like. He was more in touch with what was going on than Baruch was mm-hmm. in that time. And then my last observation is that if everybody's in the Scooby gang and they're all a member of Baruch's gang, then this makes Baruch the Anthony Stewart head of the novel. That is brilliant. He's the Giles. Albert Einstein, is that you over there? The that is brilliant. I think it's, a, I like it. I like it a lot. All right. That concludes our coverage of chapters six and seven. It does. Next time, eight, nine, and 10. Three eight, chapters. Nine, and 10. And, and we are looking at covering three chapters uh, moving forward. Each of the books in this novel are three chapters long. So it makes a lot more sense and gives you guys. Uh, more to read between podcasts. Early on, it wouldn't have made sense for us. I mean, the first couple of podcasts we did were over two hours. Right. There was so much new detail. But now that we are theoretically getting less <laughs> new characters, Liz, uh, it, should, it shouldn't be as, uh, it, they shouldn't be quite as long as they were. So are you ready to talk about some listener interactions? I'm ready. All right. So we put up our question just like we typically do. 24 hours or so before the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. We have one comment from Twitter. Uh, it's Joshua Ray, who is at Rotated DC2. 
And he says, don't have a question, but I will say I'm so grateful you guys are covering this book, going through it so granularly. Granularly, I'm having. I am not Anamanda Rake. My tongue is just does not have that level of skill. I guess I don't know. Going through it so granularly has allowed me to finally understand what happened in this book. Thank you, Joshua. We are. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. We are very uh, happy that you're enjoying it. And then over to Facebook, which is where most of the interaction occurs. If you want to hang out with us and, and get questions on the podcast and be a part of the show then going to the Facebook group page would be a good place to do that. Oh, and just to point out, when you go to join the Facebook group page, you do have to answer a membership question. And it is a very easy question. It is, I think it's like, what is your favorite series that the Duke and Duchess uh, have covered? I think we were starting to get some spam bots in the group, which is annoying. So um, just be aware that if you do not answer that question, we will assume you are a can of potted meat <laughs> yeah uh, yeah we will, so, uh, we will assume you are a frozen can of shaving cream <laughs> so three grand brown says those council members are just waiting for the invention of cars so they can have one of those car keys in a bag parties eh? i know <laughs> right? right yeah exactly definitely i mean goodness <laughs> Uh, he also says, would you rather have a golden retriever or a giant raven as a pet? Listen, I don't need another creature in this house that's sarcastic and thinks they're smarter than me. I mean, <laughs> see, I'm going to go take the, the golden retriever. Please. I'm going to go the other direction uh, because okay. because when when it was the great raven sitting there pretending to be an old wounded dog, that was definitely the worst part. So, <laughs> I mean, clearly. In its own example, the raven is superior to the dog. Uh, I don't know. I, I want a pet that likes me. Two words for you. Hip dysplasia. Eric Allgaier says, I've been thinking that to tide us over between D&D episodes. I'd start hosting a podcast about secondary characters in Malazan. Any reason why I shouldn't call it Two Quarrels, One Crup? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of discussion on this, so you can jump on the thread if you want to put in your two cents. Jen Nagel has said, has Liz at least read the preview chapters from Rhythm of War? I'd like to discuss those sometimes, as it totally involves my favorite ships and Brando slyly saying trans rights. Uh, in the year where uh, J. Rowling has gone full turf, uh, I think we needed that. Uh, really, there are about 78 other things I'd like to discuss, uh, but these two are at the top of the list. I have not read the preview chapters from Rhythm of War yet. I can say that I, I would like to, and possibly we will get a thread going, but feel free um, if you would like anyone wants, else wants to discuss this with Jen Nagel, um, have at it on the group page, and um, I will jump in once I've read them. Ben Burrell says, who would play Crocus or Krupp in a live-action film? Oh, oh, that's a good one. Um, hmm. So Crocus, who's that kid who's playing who's playing Paul Atreides? Timothy Chalamet. Timothy? I totally had the same one. Yeah, Chalamet that, yeah. or Chalamet? I don't know. I'm totally obsessed Sh with him though. He's so adorable. Not in like a romantic way. He's very young, but in like I want him kind of want him to be my kid. You kind of want to give way. him a noogie. Like I want to like make him send some him beef home stew. with a sandwich. Yeah. Find his soccer cleats. <laughs> I don't know. I do. I want to adopt him. He's so stinking cute. Um, yes, that's who I pictured Timothy for Crocus's Sh way. Chalamet. 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 Chalamet is better. No, it's 
I had a I had a couple ideas for a Krupp. I think you said John Rhys Davies, isn't that? Krupp? Yes, I picture that's that's whose voice when he's like in Krupp, yeah. blah blah blah. I picture John Rhys Davies. I'm gonna go a slightly different direction. Joshua Illingad. Who is that? He is the guy who played uh, the guy who was the voice of Olaf in Frozen. Josh Gad. Josh Gad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, I could see him. Josh Gad. Yeah. Yeah, I could totally see that. Uh, Brian McClure said, when I read this for the first time a few months ago, <laughs> uh, when I read this for the first time a few months ago, I couldn't decide whether I liked or disliked uh, Animander Rake. Are you having the same struggle? I mean, like in the sense that I'd like to have a beer with, not in the sense I think he's good or badly written character. Um... I definitely like the character from a good or bad written standpoint. Yes. I definitely don't want to have a beer with that dude. No. I don't want to be in the same room with that no, dude. No, not at all. But like, Justin, like, I, like, want him to punch me in the face just once. So I can be like, <laughs> Amanda Rick, punch me in the face. I don't think you want that. <laughs> I think you think you want that. I mean, I could convince him to just tap me lightly. <laughs> I don't Listen, I don't think the rake does anything halfway. He also says, uh, up to this time, the author seems to have gone out of his way to only show the gods as sources of power, not gods in the way we would associate the term with. Uh, until now, there's been no reference to prayers, religious celebrations, rituals, organizations, dogma, belief. In fact, until meeting the Elder God, I assumed that this was a world without religion entirely. Uh, does this feel to you like sloppy world building? It feels like sloppy world building to me. So for me, it doesn't. And we talked about this a little bit. To me, it feels like just layers being revealed. Um, that right now we've got this system of like ascendants who kind of take over Warrens. But in the past, there was a there were different deities and for me that's kind of different and cool yeah i just kind of took it as whose perspective and whose head we've been in to this point right and none of those characters strike me as people who would be you know potentially pious in any way not that they couldn't observe religious things um so no it, it didn't it didn't strike me that way now that you mention it it i do sort of see the lack uh that he's highlighting um but it, but it didn't strike me as bad writing. Brian McClure also says, so you're writing a book and you realize you've accidentally put in your first rogue assassin D&D character. Do you A, get rid of him, B, spend some time developing him into a more 3D and less flat character, or C, make an identical clone of the character because your book clearly doesn't have too many characters already? I assume he's talking about Tallow. Yeah, that's... How we kind yeah. of opened up with Tallow and then Tallow got killed and then there's... And then Ralik Nam comes along. I definitely see it, it didn't strike me that way because I totally like the idea of introducing a character that you kill off immediately. Right. Like it's yeah, a it trope didn't rub that me, I enjoy. Yeah, it didn't rub me there, but I could see what people might not like that trope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then on a scale of one to 10, how cool was Crone the pet raven? I mean, it's so metal it goes to 11. It, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Nicole Dietloff says, when I'm petting my dog, Hank, am I actually petting the great Raven crone? Oh, there's a picture. Oh, Hank, be. so cute. You might. Does Hank 
advise you to drink wine. (laughs) Because if he does, (laughs) there's only one of two possibilities, and one of them psychosis. I'm just saying. (laughs) Uh, Nicole also says, also, what was actually insinuated during the scene with Krupp and Crocus when Krupp sees something on his hands and asks if he's smitten? Um, So, yeah, I think it's that Krupp made the wax impression of the coin while Crocus wasn't looking, and he gives the coin back, and Crocus then gets a little bit of wax on his hand. He's like, oh, that's weird. I got some wax on my hand. Yeah, not not that he ran off to rub one out or anything Mm -hmm. like that. I did not catch that the first read through through, Uh though. I was also like, what what is he talking about? Why do I have wax on my hand completely out of nowhere? Like, I didn't... I didn't catch it the first time through. I had to go mm-hmm. back and be like, "What? What is he talking about?" Right. And then it and then it made sense to me when I realized what had happened. All right, are you right. ready for predictions? Yes. All right. I am pretty confident that all of these predictions are going to be wrong. Lay them on me. Those are the best kind. I mean, they're pretty nuts. So the first one is Anamanda Rake is hiding something about Pale's Wizards. It's not as straightforward as he says. Okay. I just, his, he's like, no, I need the, I need those two dead. Uh, I, I want no remaining survivors to be able to tell the tale of what happened with my agreement with Pale. Mm-hmm. Strikes me as there's more to the story. Mm-hmm. So that's my first one. Uh, my second one, which stems from the being in Hinter's Tower, Rollick wants something from the bottom of the pond in the mm. Tower's Keep. Now I look at you and I know that is clearly wrong. <laughs> I don't know. But I was just, I'm like, what the hell are they there for? So right. my only... You know, my only supposition, they weren't going to go in the tower. Mm-hmm. Right before they left, they were looking at the water. It's like, maybe there's something in the water. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So that that's that one. Uh, number three, Rollick was going to assassinate Lady Simtol on behalf of another. But I suspect it isn't actually Call, but instead Baruch. Mm-hmm. And that Baruch had plans with Lady Simtol that the lady interrupted... Uh, thus, Baruch sent Rollick to dispatch her. All right. Getting and, twisty and turny up in the old Tudor's head. And my last one, yeah. which is completely bad shit. Oh, yeah. Krupp is not human. Okay. All right. I'm giving you the hairy You're eyeball. Giving me that eyeball. But you've gotten too good at hiding. Not this poker face. Your You're not going to crack it. I never thought you would develop a poker face. <laughs> <laughs> if we actually played poker, I'm pretty sure I'd be able to read you like a book. <laughs> yes. The trick is that I sit here and picture you naked. Hence, no reaction. <laughs> <laughs> You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Uh, the Facebook group page 
is the place to hang out with us where you're, you're most likely to be able, able to interact uh, with most of the listeners and us as well. Uh, and that is Facebook slash group slash the DND group. Uh, all the other social medias, the Instagrams, the Goodreads, the Reddits, uh, just by looking for the DND podcast or the Duke and Duchess podcast. Thank you, everybody. Next time, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Good we'll night. See, we'll see you when we see you. Good night, everybody. Take out the part about Simtal being a slut. <laughs> then take that part out and cut it and put it at the very end of the music. <laughs> you're only allowed to call people a slut if you are also a slut. Only sluts can call other people sluts. That's not true, by the way. <laughs>